Good morning. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Genesis 1 as we uh, come to the conclusion of our series called Strangers and Exiles. Uh, Next Sunday, we will jump back into the Gospel of John. We'll pick up in chapter 6, which is where we left off last fall, uh, considering uh, John's invitation for us to see Jesus' power. The power that he reveals through his miraculous signs, through his life-giving words, through the outpouring of his spirit, even the resurrection of the dead. And so we'll be uh, launching back into John's gospel. But today we have one more subject in our current series to consider as we've been exploring how the good news of Jesus, the gospel uh, of who God is and what he's done to deal with our sin and establish his kingdom through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, how that good news helps us navigate some of the more challenging, confusing, divisive uh, issues that we encounter in daily life in this ever-changing world. And that final category for this morning, as, as Stefan mentioned, is the gospel and gender, or more specifically, gender identity. Uh, This is perhaps the newest of all of the issues that we've considered uh, in this series. Not that gender dysphoria is entirely new, but only very recently has it taken up so much space in public dialogue and discourse or generated so much heat uh, in the process, uh, such that an idea that would have caused most people to scratch their heads in confusion just 30 years ago. The idea that I I was born a girl, but I'm actually a boy. That idea has become so widely accepted that that any reaction that is not 100% absolutely unquestioningly affirming of it is now seen as hateful and transphobic. Of course, we're talking about Uh, the disconnect that some people feel between their biological sex, the body they were born with, and the gender that they feel themselves or or believe themselves to be, what goes by the popular label of trans or transgender. Uh, uh, One author explains uh, gender dysphoria, which was formerly known as gender identity disorder, is characterized by a severe and persistent discomfort in one's biological sex. It typically begins in early childhood, but in most cases, nearly 70%, childhood gender dysphoria resolves uh, on its own. Historically, it has afflicted a tiny sliver of the population, roughly 0.01%. This is historically, and almost exclusively boys. Before 2012, in fact, there was no scientific literature on girls ages 11 to 21 ever having developed gender dysphoria at all. So this is a very new phenomenon in many ways. In the last decade, that has obviously changed. The Western world has seen a sudden surge of adolescents claiming to have gender dysphoria or identifying as as transgender despite having no symptoms in early childhood. And so for the first time in medical history, biological girls are not only present among those identifying, but now constitute the majority. So this is a very new development uh, in our culture, in our society. So for instance, 
Uh, between 2016 and 2017, just one year, the number of gender surgeries for biological females in the U.S. quadrupled. One year, with biological women suddenly accounting for 70% of all gender surgeries. In 2018, the United, uh, United Kingdom, U.K., reported a 4,400% increase over the last decade in teenage girls seeking treatment. And, and understand that we're largely talking about children here, adolescents, many of whom have not yet hit puberty, uh, seeking and receiving medical treatment to stop their bodies from developing as they were designed so that they can try to become something externally that they believe to be true internally. Uh, in fact, over the last 15 years, the U.S. has gone from having no pediatric gender clinics to now having 100 clinics in just 10 years. And uh, to begin transitioning, as, as one uh, former caseworker at Washington University's pediatric gender clinic in St. Louis explains, uh, to begin the transition, the girls needed a letter of support from a therapist, one they usually recommended, whom they had to visit once or twice to get the green light. The next step was a single visit to an endocrinologist for a, pre uh, a prescription for testosterone, and that's all it took. That's all it took to begin the transition. And in many states, you can do all of that without any parental notification. The schools and clinics will hide that information from parents. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. We're talking about one of the most essential aspects of who we are as humans. And what one author describes as the irreversible damage being done to children and young people in the name of care. And as with many of the subjects that we've looked at in this series, uh, this is not just theoretical. This is a very personal subject for many of us. Whether we struggle to make sense of our own gender identity or have watched siblings or children agonize over who they are, perhaps even make a transition, or whether we're helping our kids process their friend's announcement coming home from school that, that somebody who was a girl is now a boy and, and what do I do with that? Or many of us have transgender colleagues and, and we fumble over, how do I interact? What, what, how do I refer to them? What pronouns do I use? We know in our hearts that something's not quite right here, but it's, it's hard to know what do I actually do with that? What do I think about it? How do I feel? How do I respond? Especially when so many who struggle with gender dysphoria also struggle with a whole host of other mental health issues including depression, self-harm, suicidal ideation. So how do we love them with both truth and grace? Well, once again, the answer is the same answer we've looked at with every single topic we've considered in this series. How does the gospel of Jesus help us navigate this issue? We need the hope and wisdom of the good news of Christ, the gospel that restores us and renews us for life according to God's vision. 
And as we think about that good news and how it helps us and guides us, uh, I want to offer us another framework, uh, another gospel framework for making sense of this issue. Throughout the series, we've talked a lot about the guardrails of the gospel, right? That sin really is sinful and grace really is sufficient to deal with that sin and how that keeps us on the road. And we don't want to move on from that. But there's another way of summarizing the gospel message in Scripture that I think is particularly helpful in in understanding this uh, specific issue. And that's the redemptive storyline of the Bible. How how the the gospel, the the redemptive storyline, how it moves from creation to fall to redemption to new creation. You can summarize the whole Bible's storyline in those four movements that that climax and center on Jesus. And and not just the Bible storyline, you can summarize the story of each of our lives along that same storyline. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. And so I want to start with creation this morning, with the goodness of God's design. So look again, uh, Genesis 1 verse 26 Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So Genesis 1 gives us God's vision for creation. Here his vision for humanity in particular. And the first thing to notice is that we are created. Like We didn't just do this. We didn't come up with this. We didn't come up with the, de- the design. We were created by God, and we were created for a purpose. The, the Genesis account is not willy-nilly. God has a plan and a purpose, a design within it. As you read through that story, there's something glorious and climactic about humanity being made. Uh, unlike every creature that we meet in Genesis 1, each of which is made according to its own kind. When you get to verse 26, you're thinking, and then God made humanity in his own kind. But that's not what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image. That's new. We didn't see that with anything else in creation up to this point. There's something unique and special about humanity here. And, And people have wrestled with what exactly does it mean to be made in God's image for a long time. But if we look at how Genesis and the rest of Scripture develops that idea, I think we can summarize it with three words. First, it's relationship. It's relationship. If you keep reading in Genesis 5, Adam has a son in his likeness after his own image. He uses the exact same language to describe this parent-child relationship that Adam has with his son, Seth. So we were made to have relationship with God. We were made to be his children, that parent-child relationship. But then second, it's also reflection. Just like a a child often bears resemblance to their parent, right? Anybody ever tells you your kid looks like you or something like that? In the same way, we were meant to reflect our heavenly parent, God. Uh, Not in terms of physical features like the size of our earlobe or nose or something like that, but in terms of his character, his reputation. We were meant to be a reflection of his glory. And then third, it means representation. 
royal representation, servants of his kingdom. Verse 28, he commissions humanity, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, rule and subdue it. Exercise dominion, not for yourselves, but on my behalf. We are representatives of God, our Father and our King. That's what humanity was made for, to have relationship with God, to reflect him, to represent him. And, and as you read in Scripture, we find that this is true of both male and female. That's what verse 27 tells us. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Sexual distinction is built into God's design from the very beginning. And the imprint of God's image is ascribed not just to our souls, but to our bodies as well, to the whole person. And there have always been religions and worldviews that have taken a very low view of the body, right? Uh, uh, to that this material world is a prison and part of finding life means figuring out how to be liberated from this cage, which is my body, then I'll find the true self and so on. You look at the ancient heresy of Gnosticism, that was part of part of that package. But scripture always takes a very high view of the body. It is created good. It is part of God's good design. Your body is not incidental. It is essential to who you are. Your body is essential, which means our maleness or our femaleness are not incidental or superficial either. It's not like a skin in a video game where I, if I don't like it, I can just upgrade or change it out for something else or the color of a car. It is essential to who we are. It's part of the design. The Bible makes no distinction between gender and sex. As Todd Wilson explains, sexual difference is part of our nature as creatures. And because of this, our being male and female is integral to our calling as image bearers. As a result, we cannot minimize or ignore the fact of our either being male or female without undermining our ability to flourish or find fulfillment. It's not incidental. It's essential. It's part of who we are. And now, some of us may look at that and think, well, that was, that was a mistake. It was like a, a design flaw in the original creation what if i'm not what if i don't like my body or feel at home in it well first no adolescent feels at home in their body right there's all sorts of weird things happening right but second we need to remember god's evaluation of his design what god says about his creation that when he completed it he saw that it was good in fact, when he stepped back and surveyed his, all of his creational work at the end of Genesis 1, he declared it was very good. God's design is good. And so, as Wilson continues, God's first call on our lives is to acknowledge rather than deny our sexuality. We are our maleness or our femaleness. We are to rejoice in it rather than downplay it. We are to lean into it fully rather than avoid it 
entirely. And we are to embrace its limits rather than try and transcend it. Tragic things happen when we begin to despise our own sexuality and the bodies that God has given us. Which, you know, that's all well and good for the majority of the population that feels at home in their own bodies. But why do some people not feel at home? And what's wrong with making adjustments to that end? What about the tragic things we're told will happen if you don't transition or if you don't support somebody who wants to transition? Well, that brings us to the second movement in the gospel storyline, to the fall, to the fall of humanity, the brokenness that results from sin. Now, if you're even just a little familiar with the Bible storyline, you know that we don't get very far in the story before things fall completely apart. Genesis 3, uh, the people that God made in his image are tempted by the evil one and decide that they would do a better job running the world than God. Rather than trusting the designer to know what is good and to, to, to determine what is right and what is wrong, they would prefer to make those decisions for themselves. That was the temptation in Genesis 3-4, the knowledge of good and evil, to become like God and knowing good and evil. And so they sin against God. They, they take the bait. They break his command in effort to join him on his throne, maybe to nudge him off. And as a result, the blessing that God envisioned for his creation is corrupted by the curse. Human sin and rebellion disrupts God's design. It always disrupts God's design. It messes everything up. It, it cuts us off from relationship with God. It leaves us spiritually dead and eternally separated from him unless he intervenes. And, and it, it, so it breaks the relationship with God. It also mars and distorts his image within us. Like we're still made in God's image, but, but it's all messed up now. It's like looking into a broken mirror. Instead of seeing a reflection of what you're supposed to look like, your nose is like over here now and, and so on. It's, it's distorted. More than that, it also spoils the very fabric of creation itself. It affects good things like work or family or relationships. Even our own bodies are affected by the fall of humanity. Romans 8, to 23 says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons for the redemption of our bodies. Our bodies need redeemed as well. The fall of humanity affects not just our behavior and relationships, but sometimes our minds and our bodies. So you consider something like disease. Like disease, uh, that's not part of the original design. Our, our bodies were not intended to get sick or to eventually die. That's a result of the fall. Which doesn't mean that every time I get a cold, it's because I sinned that week or something like that. That's not, not what we're talking about. Most of the disease in human history is a residue of humanity's original rebellion at the beginning. 
same thing can be said about disability. About disability. That's not the way it was meant to be. But because we live in a fallen world, it's very normal that it happens. It's a result of the fall. And the same thing can be said about disorders. Mental health disorders. Things like anorexia or depression or bipolar or gender dysphoria. It's a result of the fall. Our bodies and our brains don't always work the way God meant them to work. Gender dysphoria is real. It is a real challenge. There are times when some people genuinely feel a disconnect between their bodies and their own self-perception. And sometimes being afflicted for years. And when that happens, it is tragic. And, and it ought to move us to compassion. And to comfort and to, uh, to come alongside those so afflicted. And it's important to remember that, that the experience, that disorder and that confusion is not in and of itself sinful. As Andrew Walker explains in his book, God and the Transgender Debate, individuals who experience gender dysphoria are not sinning when such experiences occur. The Bible nowhere categorizes unwanted psychological distress as sinful in and of itself. We need to recognize that. This is an experience that reminds us that ourselves are just as broken as the rest of the creation around us. But, he continues, deciding to let that feeling rule, deciding to feed that feeling so that it becomes the way you see yourself or the way that you identify or the way that you act, that is sinful. Because it's deciding that your feelings will rule over you and have authority over you and define what is right and what is wrong. Again, this is downstream from, from the expressive individualism that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. This idea that I am my own and I belong to myself, and the, so therefore I have the, the right and obligation to create my own reality. This is all downstream from that. And, and it's following Adam and Eve's lead in the garden, claiming for ourselves the authority and the knowledge to decide what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil, and then treating as evil our, our, our created sexuality, treating as evil something that God has declared good. So gender dysphoria is a result of the fall, and embracing and leaning into it is to continue in the trajectory of the fall. It is to walk in sin. So what's the way forward? What, what's the solution? Well, the world will tell us that the only appropriate solution is gender-affirming care, by which they mean affirming the self-perception, not the biology. In fact, anything less, according to the world, is transphobic and harmful. Some would go so far as to see the, ca the category concept of gender eliminated completely from society. But the gospel tells us something different. And that brings us to the third movement in the biblical storyline of redemption, of rescue and restoration in Christ. You know, in many ways, the transgender movement and the gospel of Jesus offer competing, they, they represent competing offers of salvation. 
competing offers of salvation. According to the world, salvation for gender dysphoria is found in gender-affirming care. Affirm the self-perception. A new name, new pronouns, a new wardrobe, maybe breast binders, testosterone, eventually top surgery. That's where salvation is found. And it comes with its whole own army of prophets, social media, YouTube influencers, peer groups, all heralding the good news and warning of the judgment to come if you do not transition or if you do not support someone who wants to transition. The, the greatest threat among them being suicide. And, and make no mistake, the rates of self-harm and attempted suicide among the transgender community are tragically high. Like, it is a crisis that cannot be avoided. And, and it ought to always move us to sorrow and compassion and serious offer of care. But the idea that gender-affirming care actually reduces the risk of suicide or addresses the causes for that suicidal ideation that idea is completely unfounded in any scientific literature. In fact, the risk of suicide increases after sex reassignment surgeries, typically. The growing body of scientific literature studying gender-affirming care and its effects are concluding that the risk of harm far outweighs the potential benefits, such that some clinics have selected to shut themselves down. The research doesn't warrant the care that they've been providing. Especially when you consider uh, that somewhere between 70 and 88% of people grow out of their dysphoria on their own. So 70 to 88%. And yet we're being told if you don't intervene before they have a chance to do that, you're harming them. Intervene in an, irreplace, in an irreversible way. That's where the harm truly lies. It is a false gospel. Gender-affirming care is a false gospel, unable to make good on its promises of happiness and flourishing and doing untold damage in the process. The gospel of Jesus offers a better way, which may seem hard to believe in the moment, in the situation, but it offers such a better way because if, if God's original creation was good, then the solution we need to look for is not a divergence from that or a transcendence over his created design, but a return to it. That's the solution, a return to it, a restoration of it. A meaningful life does not come by inventing or augmenting reality, but by aligning ourselves with it. You know, as, as Vaughn Roberts puts it, uh, a fish that decides to make a bid for freedom by jumping out of the water uh, will not be free because it was created to live in an environment of water. And so as soon as we try and become something that we are not, far from enjoying freedom, we cannot expect to flourish. We must align ourselves with reality, with God's reality according to his design, to live as we were made to live, in communion with God, 
in, in contentment with his good design and in cooperation with his kingdom purposes. Which means for all of us that our relationship with God needs to be restored. Like that's true for everyone. Sin breaks that relationship with God. It separates us from him such that we need a savior. That's the first and most important thing in any of this, that we would come to know Christ. Before you worry about gender identity, do we know Jesus? Have we found salvation in him, new life? That's the start. But this leaning into God's redemption, it also means for some of us that our relationship with our own bodies needs to be renewed. So the lies that we've come to believe about ourselves or, or the desires that we've allowed to rule ourselves, whether we're talking about body image or appetites or sexual desires or gender identity, we need to be restored to God and have his image renewed in us. And only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus is qualified to do that, in fact. The Apostle Paul puts it in Colossians 1 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So, so while we're made in the image of God, what he's telling us is that Jesus is the image of God. He is the perfect embodiment of his Father. And so therefore, all of the ways that we've fallen short of God, all of the ways that we diverge from his good design, all the ways we push against his will or fail to reflect his goodness, Jesus gets it right. He gets it right as that perfect image. He is a new Adam. In him there is a new start, a new humanity, not taking off in a new direction, but being restored to that perfect design. And he offers that redemption and that renewal to everyone who believes in him. No matter what our story is, where we've gone, where we feel like we've succeeded or failed, that offer is available to everyone who trusts in Christ. The, the Apostle Paul explains it this way in Romans 5.19. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, that's Adam, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. That is Christ. Through faith in him as the new Adam, the, the founder of a new humanity being reclaimed for God and his purposes, we can be restored to God through faith in Christ. But he doesn't just rescue us from our sin. He also refashions us into that image that we were designed to bear. In, in 2 Corinthians 3.18 Paul tells us this, that, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So as we seek, understand what he's saying here, as we seek Jesus, as we commune with him and behold his beauty and his glory and draw near to him, he changes us. He reverses the effects of the fall in our hearts and in our lives so that we begin to look more and more like him, 
to reflect that image. He, he redefines our identity according to his identity. He realigns our desires with his desires. He renews our strength to follow him. And, and this gospel renewal, it applies not only to our status before God, our standing, but also to our hearts. He gives us a new heart. It, it applies not just to our souls, but also to our bodies as well. We don't often think about that. But our, you know, when you think of it, Jesus gave his body to rescue us, not just his soul. Because our bodies are worth redeeming as well. You can think of it this way. Jesus' incarnation affirms the goodness of the human body. His substitution on the cross, his bodily substitution on the cross, recognizes the brokenness of the human body. And his bodily resurrection secures for us the full renewal of our human bodies. Like the body matters. It was part of God's design and it will be and it is part of his plan of renewal as well. Now, and this is important, much of that bodily renewal waits for the end. Right? It waits for the end. Contrary to the prosperity gospel charlatans who will tell you if you just trust Jesus, you're never going to get sick again. Uh, that's not what scripture says, right? You're going to have to throw out half the Bible to land there. Um, Trusting Jesus does not automatically make us healthier or take away disease, which means it doesn't automatically make disorders like gender dysphoria go away either. Sometimes there is a long, difficult road to be walked, requiring all sorts of love and patience and encouragement and support. But the gospel does supply us with the power of the Holy Spirit to say no to sin, and it supplies us with the truth that's able to renew our minds to live in accordance with reality, in accordance with God's will. And it promises a day when all of this that's broken will finally and forever be made new. And that brings us to the, to the fourth movement in the, that gospel storyline, the final category, new creation. New creation. There is a day coming when everything broken in this world and broken in our bodies will finally and forever be made whole. When we will perfectly actually reflect the image of God the way we were designed for. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, this is a uh, 15.21 to 23 and verse 49. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. Again, Adam and Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, he's already raised from the grave. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, the rest of us, right? And just as we've borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. The Lord is restoring his image in us. And when Christ returns and our bodies are raised to be like his glorious body, we will be perfectly restored to God's image and design. This is the hope for all Christians. 
not just those who struggle with gender dysphoria. This is the hope for all Christians because this is the story of all Christians. We are created in God's image for his purposes. We are broken and fallen through sin. The Lord has, get, has come to redeem us from that and restore us to himself. And a day is coming when that will be perfectly and fully complete. That is our hope. Which means that in the meantime, we can all work together. Whatever ways we feel the fall of humanity, the brokenness of this world pressing in against us or, or flowing through us, we can all work together pursuing Christ. Repenting of sin. Lamenting its effects. Encouraging one another. Celebrating the goodness of God's design. Reminding one another of the intrinsic value and dignity of being made in God's image. Girls, it's good to be a girl. Boys, it's good to be a boy. And embracing that honors the Lord. And His grace is sufficient if we ever have a hard time believing that. His grace is sufficient. His truth guides us when the voices of this world are trying to lead us astray. The gospel of Jesus restores us and renews us for life according to God's vision. Brothers and sisters, there is no better way to live. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, God, we thank you that you have not left us in our brokenness. We thank you that, that your good design will ultimately prevail. We thank you that in your mercy you've given us Christ to rescue us, to redeem us, to renew us. And Lord, we ask for the strength to hold fast to him as we pursue the life you envision for your people the life Christ gave his life to redeem us for. Lord, renew our hearts, direct our minds to love and believe what is true and to live in accordance with it by the power of your spirit and give us the compassion and grace and humility we need to come alongside one another because that journey is hard. Lord, give us strong convictions and soft hearts as we pursue you together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.